0: Hello and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. I'm your host, Alizar Jan. Today, I'm joined by Hassan Hajj, professor of anthropology and social theory at the University of Melbourne in Australia. We'll be talking about his book, The Diasporic Condition Ethnographic Explorations of the Lebanese in the World, published in 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. So, thank you very much, Hassan, for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Of course. And, you know, for me, speaking with you today is a special pleasure because I've been thinking about um, and thinking alongside your work for a long time. And this book really reads like a culmination of a long trajectory of you thinking, um, seeing, relating. Um, So to start off, I will ask you to tell us about your background in anthropology and social theory and how it led you to this book.
1: Yes, it can be a long or a short story, this one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, it is true that diasporic condition is uh, something of a culmination in the, in the sense of it is, it embodies uh, like without any exaggeration, a kind of like 25 years or so of, of intermittent fieldwork, and uh, it has gone through so many versions. Uh, and yes, well, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm actually like did not start either in anthropology or or in working on diaspora. I did my PhD on on Christian Lebanese fighters uh, in the Lebanese civil war and uh, but uh, this, this this has always been sort of like for anyone working in the middle east you don't you always sort of like go multidisciplinary like if you're working on lebanon you don't have the this amazing body of work which allows you to be only political scientists or only a sociologist you have to read anthropology sociology politics if you're if you're writing a thesis on 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 the Middle East. This, I think it's a it's a kind of like it's taken for granted to be multidisciplinary. I have I have a kind of uh, bias towards ethnography and towards experiential experiential um, uh, approaches to to the social sciences. Uh, Plus I have a kind of like long association with uh, Pierre Bourdieu who has uh, kind of like uh, taken me under his wing for various parts of my career and so he has I wouldn't say I wouldn't never uh, like people to identify me as some kind of
0: uh, bourdieu
1: or whatever but I'm recognizing simply simply my debt uh, to, to, to Boudieu who has been very generous in in sort of like during my formations and uh, and so what but also it shows also as with Boudieu there's a kind of like tension between the sociological and the anthropological that I have always tried to negotiate, but, uh, you know, I mean, I've been teaching in anthropology departments, 15 years at University of Sydney, and 15 years at University of Melbourne. And before that, I was teaching anthropology courses when I was at University of Western Sydney. So like, my location has become in anthropology, kind of like through teaching and through orientation, rather than through formal through formal uh, training, but uh, also kind of like being in Australia with a Middle East uh, PhD is not a good career move. You know, <laughs> like there isn't, <laughs> uh, like there wasn't, there wasn't at the time in Australia sort of like that much space to teach Middle East, uh, Middle East uh, anything. Uh, in, in the 80s and. but uh, as I was writing my thesis, which had to do with questions of cultural pluralism and class and how people experience themselves, their identification as Christians, uh, and what's the relation between Christian identification class, uh, positioning all these things, I found myself moving in the space of uh, Australian multiculturalism and becoming involved as an intellectual, talking about what does multiculturalism in Australia mean, how do people, ethnic people, identify through ethnicity, the relation between ethnicity and class. So I was able to move my interests in my PhD to uh, my local conditions, if you like, Uh, work in Australia, Australian multiculturalism. And as I started working on Australian multiculturalism, I started having closer uh, relation with Lebanese migrants in Australia. And so I started doing more research with Lebanese migrants in relation to Australian multiculturalism. But then uh, I started becoming interested just specifically on, with Lebanese migrants, as such, regardless of Australia and regardless of uh, multiculturalism. And this is how the interest in the diasporic condition grew and uh, developed. Yeah,
0: that is very helpful to know. So I want to jump right into the titular concept of the book. Um, so by proposing the diasporic condition, you invite us to see it as a way of being that's informed by, but not exclusive to Lebanese lives. So what is at stake in claiming the diasporic as a condition and as a condition at this scale?
1: Yes, I think I think as I kind of like was developing my research slowly over the years. I I kind of like, uh, I mean, everything in this book, you know, happened over time. It's not that I had some ideas that I started uh, researching or something like this. It was uh, seriously ethnographically driven, like ethnographic issues emerging and me thinking them and me changing my ethnographic orientation and the ethnographic orientation feeding into my readings on social theory and etc. And yeah, so over the years that it kept changing. But uh, what I was definitely aiming to develop, and which grabbed my attention as I was looking uh, historically, if you like, at at the emergence of uh, the Lebanese diaspora, but also sort of like, I was interested in what kind of experience, what does it mean to be a diasporic being? And what the, what does it mean to exist in a diasporic social milieu? And so diasporic is a way of being, of course, but it's also a mode of uh, sociality. So it's a mode of being of the subject, but also a mode of being of the social milieu. So, and uh, it really has to do with also trying to differentiate a bit between, or kind of like trying to search for the specificity of a modern diaspora. And I mean modern in the sense that a diaspora that 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 has its origin in uh, modernity. And so I started thinking it more in terms of uh, alternative. Alternative uh, modernity, as as a way, as a way of being. And so so um, yeah. When I when I when you say uh, thinking of it at uh, this scale, I think it's important to say to say this. I think maybe the the diasporic condition might might be a bit of a wrong title in the sense of like I don't claim. I don't claim in the book that there is a single diasporic condition. And uh, I don't want, either either empirically or by orientation, I'm not particularly oriented towards either orism. my theory of diaspora is the best theory of diaspora that has ever come across (laughs) or something like this. Uh, No, I'm not interested in making claims like this, but I I am interested in making claims that there is a multiplicity of, of ways of thinking diaspora and that the existing forms of thinking diaspora capture a lot of things, but there are certain things which are not captured that I wanted to capture in, in this book and that has to do with the specifically modern dimension of, uh, of uh, diaspora. What does it mean when a diaspora is not a diaspora such as the Jewish diaspora or the Armenian diaspora but a diaspora that comes with modernity. And, and so I became, I became quite fascinated really with the fact that let me put it this way for you. Uh, if you look at the way uh, Algerian migration developed as a re- relation to French colonialism and the way uh, Lebanese diaspora developed as a relation to also in Lebanon. Now you will find that, uh, so both were colonized societies, but uh, the migration that French colonialism triggered in Algeria was a classic Working class or becoming working class people who become working class through migration by migrating from the colonial space to the metropolis. So you have this common move where Algerians go to Paris, uh, you know, uh, sort of like Indians go to London, uh, Pakistanis go to London. This this kind of uh, initial early labor labor movement migration. Now, Lebanese migration did not happen this way. And that's where solar flood begins. I'm interested in the fact that at one point, so what I I call the internationalization of the space of viability. I'm interested in the fact, I I don't know if you know Lebanon, but uh, I mean, Lebanon is a lot of mountains, very hard to get to in the 18th 19th century sort of like not and quite autarkic villages that have developed on their own because of the nature of the terrain and so i'm interested in how at one point in history some villager will get up and say i'm gonna go and make a living in nova Scotia." i mean it's just pretty astonishing when you think about it. So it did not say, I'm going to go to Paris, I speak French, the French have colonized me, etc." It just said, the world is my turf. In fact, sort of like you have this Lebanese saying where you say, there's an association between, uh, they say, God's country is vast, bled allah God's country is vast and it's very interesting because it's not about having becoming conscious that the world exists it's more a consciousness that the world has meaningfulness for my living and and so so when you bring in God because God also and religion is what gives meaning so when you call the world God's country it means it's meaningful for you it's not just Sort of like something or another, and so yeah, I, I sort of like I'm interested in this moment where, and so this is where we get to an alternative that modernity, if you like, in the sense that I feel, and that's uh, obviously as we talk, it has to be a bit cliché, but uh, you know, I feel that uh, European modernity involved uh, peasants, who were liberated from feudal lords feudal lords and oriented themselves nationally towards the city so, so if I, I go to Paris to work or I go to Marseille or uh, etc so so the transition from feudalism to capitalism involved, a freeing of the regional imagination to make it a national imagination. What I'm talking about with the diasporic condition is a condition where the freeing of the feudal regional imagination leads immediately to an international imagination. So you don't immediately think you're freed from feudalism, you're freed from thinking that you only make a living in your village, or in the town next door. And you immediately start thinking, okay, I'm going to Queensland, I'm going to Texas. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. And sort of like amazing when you think how early, obviously it's much more explainable once people from the village go somewhere, they start bringing villages. But when you think about the initial moment where this happens, where you don't know people and you, you land in Brazil, you land in the US, you land in Canada, you land in Australia and sort of like in this places, it's just like, yeah. So, so that's, that's really what I'm trying to capture. In I think it's not uniquely Lebanese, but it is something specific and it's accentuated by the Lebanese diaspora, which allows me therefore to, I think uh, Great Diaspora is partly Labour Diaspora, partly like Italian Diaspora is partly Irish Diaspora, Sinhalese Diaspora, sort of like, so it just allows you to enter a particular mode of being diasporic, which has not been, as I think, sort of like captured by existing categories of, of diaspora.
0: Indeed. And, no, I want to dig a bit deeper into the specificity. Um, So in the book, you show us that diasporic culture is a culture of immigration and immigration, which I think is very important. And you show us that it's co-constituted by Lebanese capitalism. So um, can you elaborate more on this argument and how you came to draw these connections?
1: Yeah, I think I've already mentioned a little bit what what I think think by that. But at the same time, I I kind of like want to highlight that uh, I try not to uh, create too much of an intimate nexus between migration and diaspora. To the extent that I feel that for... uh, you know, we have a kind of like training with, we train our mind by by our previous readings. And our mind as academics of mobility and academics who work on migration, our mind works immediately to create a causal nexus whereby migration happens first, diaspora happens as, a result of migration. And so I try to work hard in the book to say that this diasporic culture that I am examining uh, is not initiated by migration. Sure, if migration is central to it, uh, without it, it would not have become what it is, uh, et cetera. Uh, I mean, I, I, I Use I don't I, ca- I can't even remember if I used that metaphor in in the book I think I did uh, but uh, it has to do with saying you know in Australia we have as, as you have in the US as well you have a lot of uh, beach towns that were uh, emerged as surfing surfing culture so like there were surfers looking for great waves they go. And they start having little surfing communities and surfing sort of like was crucial in uh, uh, establishing these as beach, beach towns and creating a beach culture. But at the same time, you wouldn't want to say that it's, you can only exist today in these beach cultures if you surf. Uh, in fact, you exist even if you don't surf. Um, so there is no longer a necessary nexus between between surfing and the beach house, and likewise, there is no necessary nexus between migration and and the diaspora. Also, also, I I feel that. Um, I like to say this especially to you because you have a mobility for a flag, you know. Because you know, I mean, I find, and I'm trying to be counterintuitive just to make people think a bit. But I mean, I find it a bit hard sometimes to associate migrant cultures with mobility. To be quite honest. Uh, I mean, I know migration involves moving. Yeah, uh, we don't need to disagree on this, but I have uh, done field work with people who moved once in their life, (laughs) just once, right? I mean, maybe 1966, I moved from Lebanon to Boston. (laughs) Okay. And so, and here I am in Boston Since 1966, I find it a bit hard going to this person working with them. Tell me about mobility. You know, I mean, you know, so this this kind of like so I think we need to be a bit careful how we quickly think migration, mobility, sort of like diaspora, as if almost almost as if they are coterminous types.
0: Yeah, that's. That's really really important, and thanks so much for pointing that out. Um, and you know, speaking of um, speaking of sort of the tension between. Uh, mobility, movement, and diaspora, I want to ask you a bit more about subject formation. So in the book itself, you show us that um, rather than fragmenting subjects, the diasporic condition can lead to multiple forms of inhabitants. So what does it mean then to inhabit multiple places, times, ways of being through both movement and standing still?
1: If you don't mind me critically approaching your question first, uh, sort of like because it helps sort of like so sort of like I, I, I key into uh, because I, I I key into sort of like things words that we use and I by, by critiquing I critique myself because I still do it so I have to revise it but I'll click onto the word the word rather rather than fragmenting subjects it means. so and and I'm trying not to think rather than uh, because i don't i don't I don't think that fragmenting uh, subject is a bad theory uh, I don't want to replace uh, fragmenting subject by something else so I so that's why I train myself to be attentive to words like this to try and avoid them I, I try to do so systematically in the book but I'm sure if I reread it, I'll find that I've lapsed because it's so ingrained this mode of thinking Uh, and so yes i mean i am trying to basically say that for a long time we have taken for granted that if we are studying migrant subjects we're studying them for instance in the in the study of nostalgia we are we are immediately uh, we immediately associate nostalgia with uh, remembering. And the idea is that if I'm sitting uh, in Queensland, uh, and I feel nostalgic to Lebanon, I am in Queensland, and I'm remembering Lebanon. And so, I have nothing against this right uh, I mean it's ridiculous to have something against this it's, <laughs> it's something that ha- <laughs> it's something that happens all the time when people people sort of like are sitting somewhere and remember somewhere else i mean yeah but what i'm i am against is this monopolizing our analytical imagination and therefore not being able to think anything other than existing in one space and remembering other spaces. So when I tried to theorize, because again, honestly, it's not something that, like it's a, so here, you have a very interesting combination of theoretical reading and and fieldwork sort of like fusing together slowly in my mind, because I'm doing the field work, and I'm increasingly feeling and increasingly seeing this reality where people do not tell me I am in Montreal and I'm remembering uh, Beirut or I'm remembering the village. I say actually it's a language which indicates they are in both, they are in both. They don't say I am in one or the other And so I, I started hammering this idea of how, how one can think analytically existing in two spaces simultaneously. While I was thinking this, I started engaging with what was becoming known as, uh, as the ontological turn in anthropology. And uh, uh, the question of multiple realities. And I, I although multiple realities was mainly about multi-species and interspecies uh, things, but there was an element of it for me that I found that especially in some of the works which emphasize habitus, which emphasize reality as a mode of what emerges from specific mode of deploying yourself in the world and thinking multiplicity of deployments as the basis for multiplicity of realities. So I extrapolated this with a little bit of imaginary uh, ramifications and and transformation. And this theoretical development, my my observations in the field led me to develop this concept of lenticular uh, reality, which is, yeah, it's truly the culmination of thinking the possibility of existing in multiplicity of realities that continuously reflect on each other. And just for the for the listeners, so the lenticular is a term that I got from, from photography techniques and which is the photography technique based on On what is in folk language called flip, I think flip photos, like photos, which when you flip them, they give you difference of frowning clown, smiling clown. Uh, uh, You see a city before, a city after. Uh, As a kid, I had had above my bed uh, for a long time uh, a a lenticular photo, uh, which Still haunts me, and so and so so this also like this is just a little image from my from my uh, childhood memory, which might have worked <laughs> on on helping me think uh, think uh, the lenticular uh, the lenticular condition, and let's not forget that there is a very long religious tradition. Mm which has lots of arguments about uh, the nature of Jesus, is Jesus man, is Jesus God, is Jesus man and God. So even in early religious thinking, we have this thinking about multiplicity of being, multiplicity of subject being sort of like, and, and uh, what, what it means. That's, and the essence is not to be not to let one analytical imagination monopolize your mind. It's not about replacing one with another. So yeah, I mean, I'm all for the subject who is torn between realities. The subject who, I mean, again, it's the same. I mean, obviously, you see these things, and I, I experience it. So I don't need to see it. I mean, I'm, I'm born in Lebanon. I'm Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, if you say there is no such thing as torn between, uh, etc., but I don't want it to monopolize my imagination. If I allow one theory to monopolize your analytical imagination, then I mean you have to allow for a multiplicity of of the- theories so so in a sense the diasporic condition is an attempt not i don't want people to take lenticularity to be an alternative theory. i i think it would be it would be a bad thing from my position if people start thinking and people have already started thinking it in a very creative way i think it's great that people are uh, so early in the stage of the book, people are, it's activating their imagination. Obviously, it's very satisfying for me uh, as an author that people take on the concept and think with it uh, creatively. But I think it would be a bad idea if people think that it's an alternative to uh, other obvious things, you know. I mean, it's quite amazing how much we academics are capable of denying very obvious down-to-earth things, you know what I mean, for God's sake. It's just like, sort of like, I often, I was, I'm just reading now, uh, this person criticizing, criticizing Pierre Bourdieu, uh for his inability uh, to think uh, social change. Fine, but I mean, I'm thinking, okay. So I mean, like you think, is you're really stupid or something? Like he can't. I mean, he can't notice that uh, an Arabic-speaking person has come to France and now they are speaking French. And so yeah, so their speech speaking capacity from Arabic to French, and so. And the guy said, well, Bourdieu is unable to think how people take on your, well, I mean, Bourdieu must be an idiot if he can't think, <laughs> if he can't think something so obvious. So it's just like, yeah, it just always feel how we create this dualism and end up transforming whatever we're critiquing as if everyone before us was thinking sort of like had no sense of reality. Of course, they have. These are our colleagues. They thought hard to come up with what they have come up with. And we need to respect the history of all the people who have thought before us. For me, it's a question of uh, respecting your tradition and respecting your labor. Because you want people to respect your labor as an analyst. and, And you have to respect the labor of the people who have labored before you, and so so if you treat it flippantly, uh, people will treat you flippantly.
0: Too. Yeah, that's very fair, and thank you very much for giving us so much to think about, um, not just on analytical frameworks frameworks but how we produce knowledge um, and you know this brings me more to my methodological questions if you will so something that really stayed with me throughout the book was your discussion of multi site ethnography and its limitations or impossibilities so I'm curious about how you grappled with the expectations around multi site ethnography and what kind of methodology did you arrive at as a result?
1: Yes, I don't grapple with expectations. <laughs> I don't I don't <laughs> I mean I I'm not I'm not really trying to be mature here or sort of like it's beyond me, it's kind of like, but I genuinely have never been someone who cared that much about letting someone's expectation worrying. I'm I I am genuinely <laughs> yes. But not not as expectations. Obviously, I think I think I think I think uh, I th- again. I mean, I think it's more my struggle to not let something monopolize the analytical imagination. I think when I when I when I discuss. Uh, multi-sided ethnography, and uh, as you can, I mean, I, and when I published this, which was long ago, before I published the book, actually, sort of like I had a very interesting inter- interaction with the whole mob of multi-sided ethnography in California, and and uh, sort of like, yeah, I mean, we yeah, we had really productive discussions when when we started this, because I mean, you know, as I mean, I put it flippantly when I wrote it, but I meant it. I said, well, what about, you know, I mean, sort of like how do you deal with jet lag for gods? Uh, and uh, yeah, so, so, so when, when we were talking about jet lag, it started moving from a humorous thing about the impossibility of being sort of like clear-minded to do ethnography if you're just hopping between time zones, and you're feeling sleepy. But also it has to do with how each site uh, sucks you in and becomes thicker and thicker. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, as I said, I've been, so when you're doing fieldwork for so long, and you know, first, second, third year, you have superficial connections, but fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth year, Every side becomes a web of thick relations. You know, these people, you know, their angst, you know, their, their loves, their problems, their antagonism, etc. Each field sucks you in in a completely exhausting manner, and to maintain some sense of distance from it adds more to that exhaustion. And so, to hop around doing this. Five, six, seven fields. I mean, come on, no. no, It's just like just not not physically uh, possible. And I don't think it has to do with my age. You know. um, I am getting old, but I'm still pretty energetic, <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> so I don't think it's 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 that
0: question. Yeah. Um, relatively, I'd also love to hear more about your positionality. So how did you locate yourself within the diasporic condition? And how did your position inform the ways you related with your collaborators?
1: I think, as I, as I said, obviously it says, you know, I mean, it, it, like the question of positionality, uh, I think is important. And I think it's important to be aware of your sensitivities, but also of your relations. So positionality is, is, is a, so I think also I like to use uh, the Bourdieu's concept of trajectory, because I think the question of posi- positionality is a bit too static for me, uh, and, and sort of like a position, because uh, when Bourdieu talks about trajectory, in the sense of like two people might be in the same position, but one is like experiencing upward social mobility and someone is experiencing downward social mobility. They could be in the same position, but they have different uh, trajectories. And I think uh, trajectories, uh, and so, yeah. And so I'm not only aware of the fact that I'm a Lebanese diasporic person doing research on Lebanese diaspora, but I'm a person uh, with a specific trajectory. I'm a reasonably successful academic, uh, etc. People relate to me in this specific way. Uh, People sometimes use it. uh, you know, in the field, sort of like some, some people are proud to say, oh, sort of like, come, I want to introduce you to the professor, professor is my friend, I know. You know, sort of like, so, so there's all kinds of things that happen that that you are, you have to be reflexive about. Uh, and that's where Bourdieu's concept of reflexivity is uh, very important because he differentiates between between auto, auto, or biographical reflexivity and structural reflexivity because it's and trajectory reflexivity. So it's not just about the fact that my biography means that I'm like, it's not just which means, it is that as well, right? Uh, that I am, and it gives me, obviously it gives me certain sensitivities being a Lebanese diaspora, And I think it gives me certain uh, insights uh, but uh, I think anthropology has dealt for a long time with 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 native anthropologists and the pitfalls of it too to be so it's not just a source of insight it's also the source of bl- blindness uh, we know very very well that if it takes an effort to capture the common sense of the culture, which you don't know. But it also takes a lot of labor to undo the common sense of the culture that you know when you are researching. Because there's so many taken for granted things that if you don't reflect on yourself, you end up sharing blindly with certain things so you have to, yeah both it's a different kind of flavor but it's part of the labor of creating that sense of engagement and distance so you have to and it's a never-ending a never-ending labor on the self to sort of like work on distancing yourself and engaging yourself and it's never it's never a labor with a final result, you know, I mean, it's something you just have to keep doing all the time. And sometimes you find, you find, oh, no, I've disengaged myself too much. Or sometimes you say, oh, no, I've engaged myself too much. And so it's not a formula. It's it's a practice, uh, participative observation. It's a practice of continuously working on yourself to keep yourself in a particular zone. And... Uh, and that labor is a bit different, but at the same time, it's the same. If you are a native anthropologist, I mean, uh, or whatever that means, that uh, opens up all kinds of, kind of things, but uh, we don't want to go into it now.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of unending labor, uh, my last question is, what is next for you? What are some new projects or questions in which you're interested currently?
1: Yes, thank you. I'd love to share with you a little bit about what I'm working on at the moment. So last um, April, I gave the Ruth Benedict Lectures at Columbia University, which uh, involves uh, writing a little book around the lectures. And so, 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 for Columbia University Press, so that I'm, I'm working on that, and the lectures were around the theme of uh, anthropology and the question of viability. Uh, how do anthropologists think a concept like uh, viability, and what are the ramifications of taking the concept of viability um, as an analytical concept? Um, which links up with, with various anthropological approaches to the question of life. And thinking through sort of like the various traditions where life is centered sort of like an, a la Foucault, but also sort of like many of the animist, animist um, sort of like traditions that deal with questions of life. And but, uh, so with the notion of viability, uh, you bring in that question of the ability to live, if you like. And, and so, so what do you do with your life, if you like? And, and uh, that has also a long history uh, in, in anthropology that I try to draw on and uh, build build uh, something. So that's what I'm uh, concentrating on. At the same time as finishing a book which is taking me as long as the diasporic condition <laughs> uh, to finish, uh, which is a book on uh, my specific take, as actually Boudieu as a theorist of viability, in fact. <laughs> uh, so there's a link between the two
0: uh,
1: projects. But it has, it has been uh, forever. I'll just share with you this funny thing. Uh, I was giving a talk uh, in uh, Germany on Boudio recently. And I said, uh, I won't tell you that this, this talk is based on the final text of my book on Boudio because I've been telling this for my students for at least 15 years. Every time I give them, give them a course, I say, you're so lucky. This is the last version of my book on Bourdieu uh, that I'm presenting to you. And someone in, in the audience, this is in Halle, in Germany, someone in the audience put their hand up. And uh, so I said, yes. He said, I actually was your student at University of Sydney 23 years ago. And you said that <laughs> then as well. <laughs>
0: What did you say?
1: I said this. What can I say? It was very humiliating.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, we'll be looking forward to that book. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one as well. And maybe (laughs) in the next 15 years it comes out and we can have you back (laughs) at the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Don't
1: say that. This is (laughs) frightening.
0: Well, thank you so much, Hassan, for joining us and for your insights.
1: Thank you. All the
0: best. I'm your host, Aliza Ercan. This discussion of the diasporic condition, Ethnographic Explorations of the Lebanese in the World, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.